This morning we are going to think about a very important topic, a topic that is vital to the well-being of our families, a topic that's vital to the salvation of our children, a topic that is vital to the continuance, the preservation of our witness here in Toledo. This week is especially important because many of the people that we are going to be talking about over the course of this summer are men and women from the scripture that come to meet Jesus sometime in adulthood, whether when they're you know, early adults or, or even late in life. Some of them will be adults that come to meet Jesus just moments before they pass into eternity. That's most of the stories we're going to be looking at this year, but this morning in particular, we're going to be taking a look at a young man who is like so many here, a young man who was not raised as a Gentile in pagan society, a young man that wasn't raised offering idols to household gods and and polytheistic deities, but a young man who was raised being taught the scriptures, a man that had an example of devotion go before him and instruct him. This man's name is Timothy. Would you stand with me? You can open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. That will be our text this morning, or you can follow along on the screen. It'll be up there. This is the word of the Lord. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is it, it is in you as well. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use me to preach your word with clarity and with personal conviction. And may my words edify and encourage this church family. I pray that you would work in the hearts of all the future generations to save each person. Father, we pray that Satan would claim none of our children. Place your seal upon them and be gracious to them. And may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. You know, sometimes you remember odd things in your life, little factoids about the world that we live in today, and something about what you hear, what you learn, just burns in your memory where you were, the exact spot, what was going on around you, random stuff. You've got your own things, I've got mine. One of the things that uh, I remember is I was in Perrysburg turning to get on 75 and driving past that auto zone, or the Harley-Davidson, the Harley-Davidson right there, when I heard that Bill Gates was getting a divorce. What a weird thing, you know? Why do I remember that? I don't know, but I grew up here listening to NPR and uh, yeah, someone trying to bite me. Grew up listening to NPR, and you'd always hear these commercials about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the philanthropy and the work that they were doing. And I think that growing up hearing about um, all the, 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 the generous work that they were doing and then here, juxtaposing that with this idea that like Bill and Melinda Gates were getting a divorce and not only that, they had been perpetuating their marriage, not for the sake of the marriage, but for these other things that were going around or surrounding the marriage that they wanted to maintain. I think that just really 
burned itself and it burned into my memory like, whoa, you know, how tragic, how tragic. Here you have, you know, the richest man in the world, when I, at least when I was a kid, and you have all this, you know, good work that he's doing, all this charity that they're involved in, and so much success, so much achievement, and yet so much tragedy in their home, so much brokenness in their home, so much falling apart in their home. And, you know, the real tragedy is not just what happened to, to, in the Gates household, but the, the tragedy is that these sorts of stories are not uncommon. They're pretty typical. They're, they're very normal to hear about. You know, as believers, after our own standing, after our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the most important thing, the most important thing, is the well-being of our children. And when I say well-being, I'm not talking about what type of degree is conferred upon them. I'm not talking about how much money they're going to make if they'll break into the six figures or maybe even seven figures in their lifetime. And I'm not talking about what sort of box they would check on, on you know, social class. That's not the well-being I'm speaking about. It's the spiritual well-being that I'm referring to. Their relationship with Jesus Christ, their eternal destiny is what I'm speaking of. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world to be a Bill Gates, to make X amount of thousands of dollars? I remember hearing how much it would cost him to pick up a penny off the street. You know, I can't remember the number, but it was astronomical, how much his time was worth. What does it gain for a man? What profit is there for a man to gain the world, rather, and to forfeit his soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his own soul. Second only to that question is, what profit is there to gain the whole world but to see your son or your daughter forfeit their soul? What wouldn't you give to see your children walk in the knowledge of the truth? What wouldn't you give up so that they might gain eternity? And what we recognize is that we live in a world around us where many, many uh, men and women give up many of their children, their their marriages for the sake of monetary gain and how tragic that is. What would you not give up, not just to keep your marriage intact, not just to keep your relationships with your children intact, but more important than that, their relationship with Jesus secure. We've been blessed by God in a remarkable way. If you look around, you can see the wealth that's been given to us. We are stewards of the the five talents. We've been given ten You have a wealth probably sitting by your sides or on your laps. And Jesus holds us responsible for this treasure. These young men and women, these sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, grandchildren and great-grandchildren are a wealth. So the story of how God works to save Timothy should be a dear one to you. Maybe it's not your story. Maybe you became a Christian in life coming out of a, a non-Christian background. There are many of you here today like that. But even if that Timothy story isn't your story, I hope that Timothy's story will be the story of your children, the story of your grandchildren, the story of those that you're connected to and love and raise. The Apostle Paul says something very important to those of you that grow up in the church. Now listen, those of you that are children 
teens growing up in the church, I want you to listen. The Apostle Paul says something very important to you when he asks this question. He asks in Romans chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So to translate his question sort of into our modern time, where the gospel has gone forth to the Gentiles and the family of God is no longer bound to the ethnic people of Israel, but it speaks to all those that are spiritually united to him in Jesus. The family of God is all those who love Jesus Christ. Paul's question, if you were to sort of modernize it, might read like this. What advantage does the kid have who grew up in church, that grew up in church? Is there still a need to experience God's if there is still a need to experience God's saving work in a personal way, what benefit is there in being baptized when you're a baby? That's my rough translation. And yes, I did study the Greek. Good question. Paul answers it like this. This is what Paul says. What advantage is there? Great in every respect. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now notice that Paul doesn't say that you're better than other people because you grew up in the church. That's not what he says. He says that in every respect you have an advantage. What advantage is there? Great in every respect. You have an advantage, but the foremost advantage, the chief advantage is that you are entrusted, you are given, you are fed, you are taught the Word of God, the oracles of God. The Word of God, which is living and active. It's not just like a graphic novel. It's a living and active book. It is the very Word of God. It's how God reveals Himself to us. That's what the Scriptures teach. The Word of God has been entrusted to you, the lamp that is to shine at your feet, the light that is to shine before you on the path. The Word of God, which is the food of all those that are His. The Word of God. When we are united by faith to the... When united by faith to the heart of man is the greatest blessing in every respect. Every respect. Paul's right. I'm not going to go into it. I thought about talking, but I need to cut my sermon shorter. Every Every single spiritual blessing, but honestly, you look around the world and you think about all of the the advancement in every discipline, sciences, care, and, 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 and the hospital system, every respect has come from a belief in and a commitment to what the Word of God teaches. Just as. If you know history, you know that that's true. It's great in every respect. So you are privileged, those of you that are growing up in a church that teaches the Word of God in homes where you're being taught and read the Word of God, you have an advantage, and it's great in every respect. You've been given it an advantage, and it's a wonderful blessing. Now, I do want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. Growing up in the church does not make you any less dirty than anyone else. It doesn't make you better. It does mean, though, that you are growing up next to a stream where you can bathe and where you can drink from living water. You are just as dirty just as needy as everyone else. But you know where to go to wash. 
Your parents are encouraging you to wash. They're bringing you down to the bank of the river and urging you to go in. The scripture speaks all throughout the pages of the Bible about the idea that we are to, to, to be bathed, to be cleansed, to be sanctified in the water of truth. Zechariah speaks about this great river flowing out eastward and westward of Jerusalem and the fact that this water in the summer is never dried up because of drought and in the winter it never freezes over. It's always available to you. John, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, sanctify them, cleanse them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so you have a great advantage growing up in homes that love the word of God. You've been given this advantage, this privilege from God, and you're to make use of it. You're not to despise it. You're not to take it for granted. You're to consider it precious. You aren't to consider everyone else's testimony that's more extreme than yours to be a better salvation. That's ridiculous. Every salvation is a miracle. Don't despise what God has given you, that he's entr- what he's entrusted to you. Now, I want to think about Timothy, and I want to f- speak to us as parents about the way in which God brought saving faith to that young man. Timothy is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. By the time that Paul initially meets Timothy, he's likely probably a teenager, and Timothy has already distinguished himself as a serious and a faithful young man, and the elders in the church are taking notice of him. For some period, Timothy traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. We know this because Paul mentions Timothy by name as being with him in the books of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. Paul and Timothy loved each other very much. Paul viewed Timothy as a spiritual child of his, a son of the faith. He calls him a true son in the faith. We know that Timothy was not only assisting Paul uh, along with him, but actually he served as Paul's representative to several churches. And he'll later go on to become a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And we know this because, obviously, from the books we're reading from this morning as our primary text, Paul writes to him letters instructing him and encouraging him on how to go about pastoring as a young man in that city. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Timothy's childhood, but we do know a couple of significant things. First, Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. We are, not told, we are told, rather, that his, his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. Later in life, Paul will have Timothy circumcised, indicating that, he was, uh, that his father was not only Greek in ethnicity, but he also was not a likely convert or a supporter of the Jewish faith. So that's one thing we can learn by deduction. Mixed marriage, Timothy isn't circumcised like he would have been, so we can draw some conclusions from that. Second, There is no mention of his father's influence, but we are told about his mother and, as an encouragement to those of you that are older, his grandmother. They both had sincere faith. I want to read our passage again. It's only one verse. Paul says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Third, we get a picture of the effect 
of these two women's faith in the life of Timothy. If we turn just a couple chapters to Timothy 3, we could read this in verses 14 and 15. He's speaking, Paul is speaking to Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to the salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Timothy's mother not only had a sincere faith herself, but she had taught her son the sacred writings. And Paul is writing to Timothy, encouraging him to not forget who instructed him of those precious truths that he learned as a young child. If we are to see our children and our grandchildren continue in the faith that is handed down to them, then we as parents and as grandparents must emulate the life of Timothy's mother and grandmother. If we are to raise Timothy's ourselves, then we are to pay attention to the things that Paul says about them, about their lives, about their faith, about their conduct. Now listen, with our remaining time, we're going to go over three things that we learn from the passages that I've already read about Timothy's mother and grandmother. We're going to talk about three things that we must do if we are to pass on the inheritance of faith to our children. Three things that are imperative. Three things that are essential. Without any of these three, we are in the peril of seeing future generations shipwrecked. These things are absolutely essential. The first one is this. Listen. To see your children come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they must see sincere faith in you. If you desire to see your children walk with the Lord, to love his word, then they must see sincerity in your walk. You must be an example to them of faith. Paul says, I am mindful. I am mindful of the sincere faith which first dwelt in your grandmother and then in your mother. Paul says first that he is speaking of something he was paying attention to. He was mindful of this fact. Listen, I used to work on a commercial roofing crew many, for a handful of years. And one of my first days on the job, one of the men in this church, Kevin Clark, walked over to me, handed me a Janser knife about this long and said, don't say I didn't ever do nothing for you, and walked away. And I've never forgotten it, Kevin, thank you. Still got it. Now, what is a Janser knife? Well, a Janser knife is the kind of, you know, knife you only get if you go to ABC instead of Home Depot. You got to be legit. You got to be like a working man to figure out where these knives come from. They aren't sold at Home Depot or Lowe's. They're about eight inches long. They've got a sheath. And they've got an extremely sharp hook blade on the end of them. And it's not like the little hook blades that Irwin makes that you can put in the end of your little craftsman utility knife. This blade is, is long. It protrudes out. And it is used for cutting through the most stubborn material you can find. I mean, it, it just, it, it's like butter on shingles, you know? It just cuts through like butter. It, they're insane. And you better believe that a few weeks into my time, after I saw a coworker of mine whip out his knife 
and cut through a, 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 a stack of shingles and not watch where his other hand was and cut through his hand with that knife blade, you better believe from that point on I was extremely mindful of where my hand was in, in, in coordination with my other hand that was cutting. It's like using a table saw. Right? You ever know somebody who loses a finger on a table saw? You, I do admit I don't have my guard on. But I am extremely mindful. <laughs> my brother-in-law, who's extremely conscientious of safety, <laughs> is looking at me. <laughs> Oh, they get in the way. But I'm extremely mindful when I'm using a table saw to not put my hand anywhere near that yellow zone. Paul was extremely mindful of the sincere faith that he saw, that he observed in Lois, a grandmother, Eunice, a mother, and in Timothy himself. He was paying attention to it, and that means that their faith, like we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, was observable. You understand that? If he's being mindful to look for something, it has to be able to be seen. You with me? This wasn't a faith that only occupied Timothy's mother's mind. It was a faith that occupied her mind and her heart and her hands. It was a faith that could be seen and felt. Along with this, Paul adds that it was sincere. What does sincere mean? Well, sincere means that something is free from pretext or from deceit. It's completely genuine. It's true. It's real. It's not a show. It's not put on for the sake of others that are watching you. It's not put on for how it makes you feel about yourself. It's genuine. It's for the Lord. It's not for you or for others. You know, one of the questions I've been asked uh, throughout my life, once people learn that I have both grown up as a pastor's kid and am pursuing the ministry, is how on earth did you survive growing up in a pastor's home and why are you going into the ministry? And it's always struck me as a stupid question because that thought never occurred to me growing up. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that there is a troubling trend of pastor's kids and missionary's kids that grow up and reject the faith entirely and walk away from it. And as I met people throughout my time in high school and then when I went to college and, and talked with people, uh, certain things became apparent that helped me understand why I might be asked this question, like, why are you still in the church? Why do you want to serve the church? What have I heard? Well, time and time again, the thing I've heard is that uh, when I talk with pastors' kids and missionary kids, they will say that their parents weren't sincere. They said that they acted one way, they said certain things, they did certain things when they were at church and at, at the house. It was a completely different story. And the hypocrisy of that has just spoiled the seed of faith in their heart. In homes where that was true, I'm afraid that the parents likely did not have sincere faith. A lack of sincerity also shows up outside of pastor's kids' homes, though. It's all around us. We have to be mindful for it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a parent or a husband and wife tell me that they want to get involved in church or they are getting involved in church because they want their kids to, you know, grow up around God. That's essentially the gist of it. 
While God certainly can use misguided motivations to bring about salvation, going to church so that your kids can hear about God doesn't do anything in terms of a sincere faith in your heart, in your life. And obviously the thing that I always seek to say to these parents is that you've got to realize that like, you can take your kids to church, but if it's not the love of your life, if, it's, if the word of God is not directing your, your actions and your beliefs, it's never likely going to do anything for them because they love you. You're their parents. They, there's no one who sees you better. There's no one who can, you know, see through all the, the, the junk of your life and see what's really true than your kids. And so it's a real silly idea to think that an hour spent in a room on a Sunday morning is going to do anything for them in the context of your parentage. You're raising them. We must set a sincere example for our children, an example of sincere faith. What does sincere faith look like in a household? What's it look like in your home? Well, it looks like pursuing God on your own, not just with your children. How many of our children might say the only time they see you reading your Bible is when you're reading it to them? Read the Bible for yourself. Pray for yourself, not just with your children. Pray for your, with your spouse. Worship God in your home. Live a life of active obedience, doing what the Bible says, having integrity, not lying. Your children know when you lie. Your children know when you're with your buddies and you're lying. Have integrity. Speak truthfully. Work hard. Don't be a lazy bum. Enjoy the goodness of God and be grateful. These are all parts of sincere faith, faith that is founded on the word of God and motivated by the truth of what it says. I think that in some cases... Um, you know, some of these sort of jaded pastors' kids, missionaries' kids I've talked with were looking for perfection in their parents. I don't always believe the, the sob stories they give me. I think they were looking for perfection, and they're rebels, and their parents aren't perfect, and so they're going to hang them on the imperfection. Perfection is not faith. Perfection is an impossibility. All of us fail and will fail at points with our children. Faith is not perfection, but it is confessing our sins and believing that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Faith is in the midst of failing and sinning, looking to Jesus because we know that we fail in many ways. Being humble, showing that to our spouse, to our kids, to those around us. Faith is looking to God to overcome our sins in our hearts and in our kids' hearts. How many of us as fathers recognize that we better be praying that God will help our kids overcome the sins that we have still yet not overcome. So faith is not shown by sinless perfection, but it is shown by fighting our anger, our fear, our, our, our dirty mouths, our greed, our lust for things. It is shown by confessing our sins. And I encourage you as parents, you, should, you, you shouldn't confess everything to your kids. But you should, when you sin against your children, ask your, say you're sorry and ask for their forgiveness. When you fought in front of your wife, you should say, hey guys, that was wrong. And mommy and I are happy now. We've forgiven each other. This is what faith looks like lived out in the home. Sincere faith. Everyone is, to a great extent, the byproduct of their parents. 
every single one of us. This is why good biographies will often not just start with the subject that uh, the book is about, but they'll back up and they'll begin with their parents or maybe even sometimes their grandparents or maybe a, a college professor, something in the back of their lives. No one can inherit a parent's faith in the way that we all have inherited certain facets of our parents' personalities. But a child can be led to faith by the sincere faith of a parent. You must be an example of sincere faith. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We must instruct them. We must instruct them. Paul says this about Timothy's instruction from his grandmother and his mother. Continue in the things that you have learned and have become convinced of, knowing from where you've learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the Old Testament, which is able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. From the time that Timothy was little, he had been read and taught what the Bible says. Think about Timothy's mother teaching and instructing him to listen and to understand and to obey what God had taught. And remember, as far as we know, her husband wasn't a supporter of the Jewish faith. And so you can imagine that for her, Her own faith would have taken some conviction to live out, but she could have done it. But now she has a son, and she realizes that she can't just passively model her own example. She has to teach. She can't just hope that, you know, her little good influence, unspoken of, untaught, but a good influence, will do the work her son needs. She actively has to teach her son. And this is harder than just leading a good example. It takes guts. It takes sweat. It takes tears. It takes time. Perhaps her husband wasn't a supporter of it. Perhaps that he lived in ways that ran counter to the very things that she was trying to instill in her son. And you think about the difficulty of that. She was committed to instructing and to teaching, not just modeling. And there are some of us here who want to think that us living in the right way is going to be enough, that we don't actually have to open our mouths, that we don't actually have to take time to deal with them, that we just do our thing and hopefully they'll wind up all right. But that's not what we see here. Eunice wasn't content just to live her faith. She also instructed Timothy in it. Instruction is hard. It takes a lot more work than just doing it yourself. If you ever have worked on a car or a house or a lawnmower or if you homeschool your children, or if you are a coach of your kid's t-ball team or bitty wrestling team, you know that this is true. It is extremely hard for me to show, you know, kids that are this tall how to wrestle in comparison with me just modeling it, right? There's there's a couple coaches. We have like 120-some, 130 kids in this bitty club. We separate them into age groups and sort of like experience levels. And there's a number of dads that are, you know, washed up like me and getting chubby and trying to lean into their past glory. <laughs> and we could all sort of model wrestling moves. It would be fine. But then you t- we split up beyond that, and we go to a mat, a little circle on a ring with like four or five kids, and these kids are the size of Levi. They're tiny. And I'm trying to show them on them, you know, and like they weigh 100 pounds and I'm 225, you know. And, and then I'm trying to get, that's even easier than when it comes to having two of those little kids try it themselves. It's extraordinarily 
it can be extraordinarily frustrating. It's because teaching other people, people that don't know, it's harder than just living it yourself, doing it yourself. This is a, this is a simple idea for us to grasp. But why do we do those things? Why do I get on the floor and wrestle around with the bitty kids? Why does Aaliyah teach our children? Well, we understand that if we don't, they won't learn. They won't learn without being instructed and taught, without going through being taught the motions of actually how to do it, without coming here and learning that kneeling is important so that you might kneel at home or so that you might raise your hand when you sing at home. While we all like to think that we can check the box on instruction, I like to think that, yeah, I'm instructing my kids. Most of you are sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, I've, I've done that. I've, I've taught my kids. Listen, while we all like to think that we've done this, and this section of the sermon probably applies to them but not to me, we have to wrestle with the fact that many of our biblical heroes did not do a good job of this. Do you ever think about that? We have the tension, on the one hand, of God promising that he's going to be a God to our children and our children's children, to the 10th generation, that language is used consistently throughout the Old Testament. But then on the other hand, we come over here and we recognize that many men had children that did not walk in the faith that they walked in. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Eli, David, the list goes on. You could trace this through the Old Testament. All of these men that had children that rebelled and did not exhibit the faith that they had. And so what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that tension? Well, one clear thing that we are to take away is the importance of instructing our children. Discipline your children. children, Call them to live in obedience to what the Bible says. David never rebuked his son Adonijah. The Bible says that. Never crossed him. Never chided him. Eli never removed his sons from serving in the temple where they were extracting uh, money and unfair. They were, they were stealing and lying with the people that they came to offer their sacrifices. And Eli never removed them. Jacob never dealt with Joseph's adolescent pride and thinking he was better than his brothers, nor did he ever really deal with his son's jealousy. You recognize that. We must not forego teaching and training our children. So read your Bible with your children. Make a commitment to memorize sections of the word together. Aaliyah does a really good job of doing that every year and probably sets an example for me in memorizing. Do that. Remember that Paul says that it is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. That's what he said to Timothy. The scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation by faith in Jesus. Are you leading your children to that stream? Don't wait. Don't start when they're older. Starting when they're older will never happen. Recognize that from early childhood, Eunice was doing this with Timothy. And don't just read. I've talked about teaching and instruction, but expect, honor the word of God by expecting and insisting that your children live lives in obedience with what it says. Don't just speak it. Call them to live it. Expect them to live it. Train them to, to live it. So set an example of faith. Instruct your children in faith. And then the, finally, the third thing we're going to talk about is pray for your children. Remember that it is not your job, nor is it within your ability, to ignite the flame of faith in the heart of your child. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Your job, though, is to arrange the wood to prepare the fire. You are to model, to instruct, and pray that the Holy Spirit would work in them. No doubt, Lois and Eunice petitioned God day after day on behalf of their son, their grandson, Timothy. It's a rare thing for a son not to follow the example of a father, no matter the energy spent trying to make it otherwise. The path of least resistance is the way that the ball will always roll. It's more likely that a son or a daughter will follow down a path that they think will make them happy, down a path that they think will be the easy route. Because why? We all want to take the easy route, naturally. A path where there isn't so much fussy religious observance, a path where there, it's not so uptight, a path that's not rigid, a path that's sort of free-flowing and sort of lighthearted, and, you know, you can do what you want. That's the natural gravitational pull of Timothy's heart. It's the natural gravitational pull of all of our hearts before we have hearts that are changed by Jesus Christ. So we see our need for God to enter the heart of young Timothy. We see the, the need for the Holy Spirit to enter the heart of your child. For as dearly as you love them, we recognize that, and I don't say we live with the expectation that they're not going to follow the Lord. I actually think that's damaging. We should expect God to work in them. But we also recognize the need for him to work. And we need to call them to a lifestyle that leads them to that water. Do you understand? We need God to enter the hearts of our children. And since we need God to work, we need to pray. We need to pray. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Pray with and for your children. And at this point, I want to um, speak to those of you that have children that have grown and that do not walk with the Lord because as I was think, writing this and thinking about this, I recognize that that's the case in, in many homes, especially if you go down to the grandchild level. And I want to encourage you to trust God and to not lose heart, not lose heart in God's goodness, to hope in Christ for their salvation as we talked about last week with the story of Rahab. She hoped in God and she acted in line with that hope. I was recently talking with a man who's uh, middle-aged, recently married, and he, he married a girl that was coming to our church for a little while, and he was telling me about his testimony. And he has a testimony that's like so many men throughout, and women throughout the course of history. So many men, like the men and women here, like Augustine, so many share this testimony. He was raised in the church. His parents were devout. They believed the word of God. Um, but through his teenage years, he became very rebellious, and he rejected faith, and ended up living a life of license and promiscuity. Um, and he, he got involved with a number of things he was sharing about. And he, well, the one thing he told me is that he knew that his parents continued to pray for him. And he said, you know, they probably never thought I was going to become a Christian. But they always would pray for me and continue to pray for me. And three years ago, God answered their prayers. Three years ago, that man was changed. 
uh, through a, a series of circumstances, his heart was softened to the Lord. And he accepted Jesus as his Savior, and his life has been transformed. And he's, I don't know, I said middle-aged, now I'm going to get in trouble. I think he's about 40. <laughs> but I say, don't lose hope in God. Ultimately, our hope isn't even in our children coming to faith. Our hope is in God, in his goodness and his glory. But hope in God for the salvation of your children. This story is not a one-off that I've shared about this, this man. Many similar stories exist. For those of you with children and with grandchildren not walking with the Lord, you can still follow the example of uh, Lois and Eunice. You must still model sincere faith. You can't compromise on your faith to appease the, the new, you know, belief systems of your children or your grandchildren. You have to have a sincere faith. You must still speak the truth to your adult children. And I recognize here that I don't have adult children yet, but I, all, I recognize that certain things change as children grow older. You can't, you know, put your kid, your son over your knee and spank him when he's 20 in the way that, unless you're me, and my mom did it, I think, what, last time I was 18? But generally speaking, you can't do that. Certain things change, but you know what can't change? Speaking the truth in love, right? Speaking the truth in love. Methods change, but the message remains the same. And so you are to live a sincere life of faith and to model it. You aren't to compromise. You aren't to live a sincere life of faith here, but then on Thanksgiving weekend, you kind of you know, slip into the gray zone. You model sincere faith in your interactions. You are to instruct them. You are to speak the truth to them. And there are parents here who have adult children, and you should be speaking to them, probably more than you are. And finally, you are to pray. You are to pray. You are to pray. You know, it always strikes me that Job, that, that great man in the Old Testament, says his children had lots of feasts. And every time his kids had a feast, he would make an offering to God and pray because perhaps they had sinned at that feast. And you think about that. day, Week after week after week, Job praying to God on behalf of his children. Are you praying for your children? For as hard as they might be, as hard-hearted, our hope is in God. These three things are the way you can act in faith <clears throat> on the hope that you have in God working in your children. Jesus told his disciples a parable, and he said this, to show at all times that they ought to pray and not lose heart. He says, a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God nor respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, the judge was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I fear God, I do not fear God, nor do I respect man, yet because this widow bothers me so much, I will give her the legal protection that she, she's asking for. Otherwise, she will keep coming and she will wear me out. Now, why did Jesus share that story? He said, I share this story so that you might know at all times how you are to pray and so that you might not lose heart. And so I would encourage you to pray as if to wear God out, just like that judge. Pray to wear God out. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, and we must seek to raise our children to saving faith in Jesus with a cord of three strands. Prayer and instruction 
without our example is hypocrisy. Example and prayer without instruction is presumption. Example and instruction without prayer is pride. A stool missing only one leg still falls to the floor and is ineffective in its use. If we are to see faith to a thousand generations, we must be about the things that Lois and Eunice were about. We must live out an example of faith. We must instruct them by faith, and we must petition God in prayer for faith. And may we do this as a church family for those that we love and hold most dear. Let's pray.